this each week, and I know on Christmas Eve we do a lot of music, and so I hope you'll come out and be a part of that uh, Christmas Eve night. Um, I wanted to share with you one prayer request. I forgot to mention this. I knew there was something, right, uh, uh, that came to me this past week. Um, Anna Kate Frazier, many of you know, um, April and Ken, um, their daughter, Anna Kate, who's in a wheelchair, um, had some surgery uh, Friday, I believe it was, and everything went really well. I talked with Ken yesterday through text message. Uh, but we just need to keep her in, in our prayers. Um, I'd like if we could just to pause here at the front end of the sermon and just pray for Anna Kate. Could we do that? Uh, let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we bring before you Anna Kate, and we ask, Lord, that you would, um, in her fragile body, in her fragile state, that you allow this surgery, Lord, to um, help her to restore to health and strength. Lord, we pray for mom and dad. We ask, God, that you would give them uh, the peace that surpasses all understanding, uh, that you would just walk with this family with extra special grace uh, that they need in this hour. So, Lord, we lift her up to you, place her in your very capable hands. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we are in a series looking at a Christmas series uh, called Good Tidings. We're looking at some of the announcements that are made through the Christmas story. Two weeks ago, we started this out by looking at the announcement that was made to John the Baptist's dad, a guy by the name of Zechariah. And we learned from that that the closing of the Old Testament left this announcement that someone like Elijah was going to appear before the coming of the Lord, that is, before the coming of this Messiah. And so the announcement uh, of John the Baptist, who was six months older than Jesus, in that part of the world when you're 30 years of age, that's when you begin to speak publicly, especially in religious matters. And so John, six months ahead of Jesus, is out there preaching and talking about... um, uh, the, repent and calling people to repentance and telling that the Lord is soon to arrive. And so we saw that a couple of weeks ago. Um, this week we're going to turn our attention toward kind of the next announcement in the chronology, and that is the announcement of Joseph, uh, made to Joseph about this baby that Mary's carrying. Um, so I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Um, it comes from Matthew chapter 1, again part of the Christmas story. We'll be reading verses 20 through 21 and 24 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, let's start at verse 20. Here we go. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you so much. You may be seated. All right, so what I want to do is I'm going to go back to the beginning of where this story starts in verse 18, then we'll work our way forward to some of what we just read. So let's take a look at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So this is Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, writing his account of the life or the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And of course, that, that ministry or his life starts um, here in, in Bethlehem. And so he says, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now that word betrothed is significant. It's saying that basically Mary and Joseph were engaged. Um, and so this is the period of preparation and the lead up to the day of the wedding and the couple moving in together. In modern times, if an engaged couple decides, you know what, I'm having second thoughts here. I'm not so sure I want to get married to him. I'm not so sure I want to get married to her. If that's what they decide, then either of them can break off the marriage plans with no, and I repeat, with no legal ramifications. 
They don't have to sign any papers. They don't have to report to any judge. She can merely just take the ring off her finger, hand it back to him, return the dress, and that's just the end of it. They're just done right there. They can break off the marriage plans at any point up till someone says, I do. Well, it's not so simple in the first century. When a Hebrew couple, in this case Mary and Joseph, come together and agree to marry one another, it was as though the marriage license itself had already been signed. Uh, both parties have agreed at this point that the marriage is going to happen. This is not wishful thinking. We think it's going to happen. Maybe it's going to happen. I hope it's going to happen. This is it's just really a matter of when, when somebody gets betrothed. Let's continue in verse 18. So Mary is betrothed to Joseph, and before they come together, that's just a nice way of the Bible saying that before they had consummated the marriage, Mary, get this, Mary was found to be with child. Now think about this. Mary shows up at Joseph's house one day and says, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Joseph knows how this works. He knows that that baby is not his. Uh, this is absolutely, positively scandalous. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that you read or you see on daytime TV, right? Uh, that here's this gal, she's married or engaged to this guy, and she turns up pregnant with somebody else's child. Uh, sweet, virtuous little Mary, uh, not looking like it at this point. Joseph feels crushed, he feels angry, he feels betrayed, and Joseph has every right to feel that way. The question for Joseph now is, what do I do with this? How do I dissolve this relationship? Because the, concept, the thought of marrying her, now that I kind of, you know, she's out there and I know who she is, uh, that's completely out of, out of the question. So what do I do then? Um, <clears throat> not to mention the fact that if Joseph does go forward in marrying her, then he looks like, you know, he was the, the, the person. Um, so Joseph has a choice. What does he decide to do? Verse 19. And, his, and her husband, Joseph, see how the Bible calls Joseph her husband, even though they're in this betrothal engaged period. Um, he says, uh, her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, here's his decision, resolved to divorce her quietly. <clears throat> so Joseph chose to divorce Mary, it says, quietly. He could have made a public spectacle out of the situation. Uh, as to say to everybody in the community, I had nothing to do with this. This was all Mary. This was her mistake. I had nothing to do with this. He could have done that just to save himself. And he would have done that, though, at the expense of Mary. But it says instead of adding insult to her injury, instead of piling on and making matters worse, he chose to keep this breakup a quiet affair. People would eventually find out. Nazareth was a small town. Eventually, you know, Mary's going to start to show, and people put two and two together. Oh, now I know why Joseph broke off the marriage. He knows that that's probably coming down the pipe. But Joseph does not want to be the source of those rumors. Good for Joseph. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, saying, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now notice that the angel calls Joseph the son of David. But Joseph's father is actually a guy named Jacob. So what's going on here? Why would the angel refer to Joseph's dad as David when his dad is really Jacob? Well, the angel is reminding Joseph of Joseph's ancient lineage that traces back to King David, through whom God promised that this Messiah would come. So that little phrasing, son of David, tips Joseph off to the fact that, hey, look, this Messiah, is, this, that's what this, uh, this is all about. This is this Messiah coming into the world through the bloodline of David, King David. Verse 20, so Joseph, son of David, do not, fear to marry as, to, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Mary has not been unfaithful to you, Joseph. 
Mary is exactly the person that you thought she was. She is exactly the person that you were hoping you would marry, a woman of great virtue. This baby that she's having was miraculously conceived, Joseph. And so, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Now, as I was reading through this text, um, that word fear, and there's a word that translates fear from the Greek language, and it's the word phobeo. And I was kind of wondering, is that the word that's used here? And so, sure enough, it is. And so, here's that word. Um, the word phobeo actually means scared to death, that you're fearful for your very life. Um, so it's not just a little bit of concern or some deep concern, but this is like somebody who thinks I might die if the situation, the circumstances don't change. Um, and so this is how Joseph is feeling at this thought of marrying young Mary. And so that, I don't know, did that strike you as odd? It kind of struck me as odd. I'm like, you know, just marry the gal and go on with your life. I mean, what's the big deal here? Well, uh, you know, what, what would cause him to feel this way, feel phobeo? Well, Mary does have a dad. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? So uh, anyhow, uh, unless the angel plans to visit Mary's father and, ex and explain things to him, right, the way it was explained to Joseph and the way it was explained to Mary, I mean, they show up at dad's house, and they're like, hey, look, this angel showed up and told us, and this is how I'm like, yeah, I mean, really? I've heard some, I've heard some humdingers in my time, but that's a, that's a, that's a big one. Um, so perhaps he's phobeo about that, about how her dad's going to react. There's also his own family. How's his own family going to think about this? Perhaps he's scared to death of his own dad and the wrath that's coming at him from his own father. Or maybe Joseph is phobeo about the townspeople. Not only is this a small town, but it's a largely Jewish community, which means it was highly legalistic. Liken it to growing up in an Amish town someplace. Uh, these sorts of improprieties were just not done. And everyone's going to conclude, again, hey, you can tell us this story about some angel and all this stuff, but we know how the world works. And so people will make their, their decisions and make judgment out based on that. Perhaps Joseph is phobeo, fearful, of how this will affect his ability to provide for his family. These Jewish people were experts at just, um, just hammering folks and just, just being ugly and nasty and showing condemnation to them. They'd say, well, this is an impugnment of your character, and so because of this, Joseph, I don't want to do business with you moving forward. I mean, he's literally thinking to himself, this may affect my ability to even provide for my family. Um, this is going to affect Mary and how she gets, whether or not she gets invited to some of the other motherless mornings outs. I mean, this is going to be a taint on her character that this community will never let her forget. Little Jesus won't get invited over to other kids' houses because, you know, hey, look, this is how Jesus came into the world. I mean, this is the kind of community that Joseph knows that he lives in, and this is how he knows that this information is going to be received. It's going to be a tough road ahead. If you think that I'm overplaying this, think again. Years later, in fact, over 30 years later, Jesus is debating with the Jewish doctors of the law, and he's winning the debate. And as a way to kind of rewrite the ship, as a way to discredit the Lord Jesus, they respond to him. The doctors of the law respond to him, John chapter 8 and verse 41. Yeah, well, at least we were not born of sexual immorality. These folks weren't from Nazareth, but they had heard about it. These folks, this is 30 years later. You thought this was long gone, forgotten memory. Nobody even knew about this. But it's right there, out there in front of Jesus everywhere that he went. Friends, you talk about a scarlet letter A following somebody around. These folks were Puritans of the worst sort. And Joseph knew this. He knew how cruel the Jewish people could be, such that it elicited in Joseph feelings of phobeo, fear for the safety and the future of his family. To the shepherds watching over their flocks by night, this may have sounded like great news. 
But to Joseph, it was a little more difficult to see the good in these tidings. All right, well, that's our passage for today, and so that means it's time for us to stop here and ask our most important question, the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, That's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. I mentioned a moment ago about the scarlet letter A. Uh, I got a little slide for you here. This is a book that some of you maybe remember from high school or from your English class in college uh, that you were required to read. This is a story of a young lady named uh, Hester Prynne. Uh, It's a fictional story. Uh, It takes place in the early to mid-1800s in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts at that time, the the population of Massachusetts was largely uh, Puritan. It was written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And while Hester Prynne's, as the story goes, while Hester Prynne's husband was off at sea, it had been many years since he had, anybody had heard or seen from him, it was thought that he had been lost at sea, Hester Prynne ends up finding comfort in the arms of another man. The setting of the book, again, is in Massachusetts in Puritan uh, culture, and so the Puritans... Uh, they were known for being pretty ugly about these sorts of things and, and, and shaming people publicly, and so that's what happens. When someone fell short of those rules, the Puritan people showed very little grace. In fact, they made a spectacle out of that person. So in the case of Hester, she's taken to the town square with her little baby girl, newly born little baby girl in her arms. She's ma- made to stand on a platform in the town square as the people of the town usher ba- by, hurling their insults and hurling their ugliness at her. Uh, the town judge then pinned a scarlet letter A, A standing for adultery, onto her clothing, and she was sentenced to wear that A on her clothing for the rest of her life. Friends, that is truth without grace. Our Wednesday night men's group has been reading a book by Randy Alcorn called Grace and Truth, and he kind of talks about uh, the paradox of these two concepts. So let me just kind of share with you a little bit about what grace is, and then I'll share with you what truth is, and then Again, how this affects your life and mine. Um, We'll start with grace. Grace can be defined as a second chance that is undeserved. Grace is mercy and compassion in action when punishment and judgment are what typically follows. Grace is God's unmerited favor. In other words, we did nothing to earn or deserve God's favor, but God shows it to us anyways. God forgives us when we don't deserve it, compassion when we've shown none, mercy when judgment should follow. And that is what grace is. Um, Truth, on the other hand, are God's moral standards by which he judges us. Those moral standards are spelled out in God's word, and they are based on God's holiness. So truth is, is a reflection, or God's moral truth is a reflection of who God is. There's not arbitrary things that God says, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this. He's saying don't do these things because that would be against who I am. That would be the, the, the opposite of who I am. Um, and so uh, the Bible teaches us, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, that all men fall short. That is that no one, with the exception of the Lord Jesus, has ever, keep this in mind, has ever uh, been able to uphold through the whole course of their lifetime all of God's moral standards all of God's truth, except for the Lord Jesus. When we violate those moral standards, the Bible calls that sin. Thankfully, the Bible also teaches, Romans 5 and verse 20, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, you and I cannot out-sin the grace of God. Amen? That's exciting. That should be exciting. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
If you're here this morning and you've been thinking about a relationship with Jesus Christ, this should be very good news to you. That God sent his son Jesus into the world as Mary's little baby. That one day that baby would grow up and would give his perfect sinless life as a sacrifice on the cross for you. Jesus took your place and mine on the cross. The sins of the world were heaped upon Jesus, him being the perfect sacrifice. The cross is God showing you undeserved, unmerited favor. Paul goes on to say in Romans 6 and verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, if you're here and you never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ, God is offering you, through belief in his Son, the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life in heaven. Something for you to think about. Now concerning grace and truth, that may seem like a paradox. How can you hold a standard and not run people off? Or the opposite of that, how can you appeal to people and let people know that you accept them and that you love them, but at the same time uh, tell the truth to them? And again, not run them off. That's kind of the sticky wicket uh, of, of the grace and truth paradox. I was driving down 316 a couple of weeks ago. Here's how some folks kind of deal with this. I was driving down 316 a couple of weeks ago, and there's a billboard out there. Maybe some of you have seen this. And the billboard is for an addiction recovery program. Um, and it has a young lady on the billboard, and there's a little statement that she makes. And the statement that she makes, and I'm paraphrasing here. It's pretty close, but I'm paraphrasing. Is what I found is that my truth is enough. She says, what I found is that my truth is enough. Let's be clear. Truth, by definition, is not arbitrary. Truth, by definition, is objective. It stands apart from and outside of human opinion. Truth does not need for me to agree with it in order for it to still be true. Randy Alcorn writes in his book, Grace and Truth, that truth is not a ballot measure. Let me say that again. Truth is not a ballot measure. As a Christian, I hold that truth comes from God's word, that everything I'll ever need to know to successfully navigate this life and the next is contained in this book. God's word is truth. We stand up every week around here to be reminded and hit the reset button. That, look, this is where truth comes from. This is what truth is to help our lives shift back toward the center of where God wants us to live. Grace, however, is forgiveness and compassion and mercy and a second chance when we fall short of God's truth. That's what Romans 3 and verse 23 concludes. However, let me tell you what grace is not. And again, this is maybe what the billboard's trying to say. Grace is not lowering the bar of truth. Grace is not altering the standards of which, by which God sets in order to accommodate my opinions and my preferences and my leanings. Let's say that, you know, little brother hits little sister. I'm sure that never happens in any of your homes, but little brother hits little sister. I mean, what parent would come up to little brother and say, you know what, if you feel like you need to hit your sister, then you just hit your sister any old time you want to hit your sister. Because you just do whatever feels right to you. No, no parent would do that. That'd be silly. That'd be crazy. Little sister would be, uh, be all tore up and there'd be, you know, there'd be all kinds of problems going on. Um, those rules are not arbitrary. They are not up for debate. What does this have to do with your life and mine? Well, our world has this notion that truth is based in opinion. That that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. 
And this should not be a surprise to us, friends. This has always been the case. The world has always been trying to do this. The world has always uh, been trying to self-justify its actions. The world has always tried to lower the bar of acceptable behavior and to try to convince the church to go along with it. To say, 2 Timothy chapter 4, what our itching ears want to hear. Is this how Jesus responded? Well, consider the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. She's a gal who's been in and out of bed with numerous men. And Jesus points this out to her. He doesn't try to gloss over this. He says to her, John chapter 4 and verse 17, You are right in saying, I have no husband. Verse 18, For you have had five husbands, and the man you're with now that you're calling your husband is not your husband at all. But what's interesting about their exchange is that when the woman leaves, she leaves with a tremendous feeling of freedom. She's excited about having been in the presence of the Lord Jesus. She feels a newness of life and a fresh start unlike anything that she had ever felt before. Why? Because Jesus showed her grace and truth. He gave her forgiveness and said, like he said to the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Friends, Jesus could have said to her, it'll be okay. Just keep doing what you're doing. Your truth is enough. Instead, he shared with her God's standards, and after forgiving her, he told her, to go and sin no more. Freedom, friend, friends, freedom from sin does not just mean being free of the penalty of sin. It also means being free to now go and live differently. Let me say that again. Freedom from sin does not just mean freedom from the penalty of sin, but it also means the freedom to now go and live differently. That's what grace and truth accomplish. No one would help the alcoholic get cleaned up after a long binge session weekend, and then at the end of all that, hand them a fresh bottle of liquor. That would be lunacy. We would say, that's unthinkable. Of course you wouldn't do that. We would, and then, then why is the church in the modern era, why have we taken the bait, and why do we think that we can show people grace with no truth? We must be a people of both grace and truth. Again, grace is not lowering the bar to accommodate our guilty consciences. Instead, grace is showing mercy and compassion and forgiveness when it is undeserved, but at the same time being willing to tell people the truth. Let me give you an example of this here at Hebron. Um, Our elders have a policy that the pastor of Hebron Christian Church is not allowed to marry a couple that is cohabitating. Uh, If somebody comes to our church and they come to me and say, hey, look, Gordon, we'd love for you to marry us, then I'm required by a policy here at our church to ask them to separate. And if they don't separate, I mean, that's their choice. They can choose not to. But if they they want me to marry them, then that's that's what has to happen. Um, And if there's any funny business going on on the side besides that, that has to stop as well. Friends, this is not an effort to make people feel bad. Let's be clear about that. This is not an effort to make people feel bad. Uh, Rather, it is a chance for the couple to repent of sin, to get right with God, to ask for God's grace, but it is also an effort to honor God and to uphold his standards for holy living. Joseph was phobeo. He felt afraid because he knew how his little Jewish community would react. They were not good at responding with grace. They were heavy on truth, but they were light on grace. They were geared to remember the sins of the father. Something, again, that Joseph didn't, wasn't even guilty of, didn't even do anything here. 
but they were, they were geared to remember the sins of the Father from one generation to the next. Friends, grace and truth are both necessary. We cannot have one without the other. And I'm going to tell you this morning, I am so thankful to be a part of a community of believers that understands we have to have both. Amen? Uncompromising with regard to truth, while at the same time abounding in grace. Last thought here. Sometimes God asks us to take a stand. Sometimes God asks us to take a stand. And we would love it, right, if the world would show us in take, our taking a stand the same grace that we are prepared and poised to show to the world. But sometimes in us taking a stand, the world's just not going to show us grace. I love the example of Joseph here in this story. Take a look at what Joseph does. After he's been given this news from the angel, look at Joseph's final response. Matthew chapter 1, and we'll close out here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 24. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, so he's just gotten all this information, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for a reminder this morning of this man that raised the Lord Jesus, that was his dad, that took the arrows and shielded little baby Jesus from a community that knew a lot about truth, but was light on grace. God, there may be times in our lives when we need to take a stand. Lord, if there's some areas in our life where you've been beckoning us, calling us to speak up, to speak out, to take a stand, Lord, may we be confirmed that it is your voice, and then may, may we do, may we walk with obedience in the steps that you have given us. Lord, if we've made decisions that have brought uh, hurt to our lives, hurt to the lives of others, we know that we can also find grace from you. And we come around this table today to be reminded that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is the opportunity for a fresh start, just like the woman at the well. God, we ask in this moment of communion that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, minister to our hearts wherever we happen to be. We give you this space. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.